Hello, you're listening to Chat Room on Scrolls and Leaves. I'm Guy Three, And I'm Mary Rose. This is a bonus episode that delves deeper into some of the topics you heard in Episode 1, Pandemics and Borders. And if you didn't catch it, you can listen to it on our website, scrollsandleaves.com. So today we're talking to Tarangani Sriraman. I teach uh, both history and politics at Azim Premji University in Bangalore. She'll be talking about Bombay. Not Mumbai? Right. I mean Bombay Presidency. It's a major trading port of the British Empire at the end of the 19th century. And those are really bad times. Uh, the famine had happened in Bombay Presidency. And uh, around uh, four and a half lakh people died in the Bombay Presidency and uh, Deccan Plateau. Famine was followed by bubonic plague, which arrived on rats that were carried by ships from Hong Kong. Tarangini will tell us what Bombay was like back then and how plague ran through the city. And then we'll hear about this old law. It's called the Epidemic Diseases Act. It was put into place back in 1897. The amazing thing is it's still around. The Indian government enacted it during this pandemic. The Epidemic Disease Act has been invoked um, after the outbreak of uh, COVID in India. And it's uh, in the name of this act um, and by the powers vested by this act uh, to the government that you have uh, very many stringent and sweeping powers of uh, surveillance that uh, state governments have armed themselves with. Tarangani's research has focused on the history of identification documents in colonial and post-colonial India. She's looked at the legal and cultural impacts of identification documents at various points in history, from the time of the plague in the late 19th century, which we're talking about today, right, to rationing during the Second World War, and most recently, the impact of Aadhaar on poor urban folks. Her book, In Pursuit of Proof, A History of Identification Documents in India, uses ethnography to trace how IDs are made, circulated and imagined by governments, administrations and by people in contemporary India and Delhi in particular. We spoke to her back in May and the interview has been edited and condensed. Just to set the scene for you, back in May, India was under lockdown. Prime Minister Modi told everyone to stay home. Trains weren't running and migrant laborers were walking hundreds of miles home. People were placed into quarantine centers. Let's hear from Tarangini. Thanks for being with us. I've been looking forward to this quite a bit, so thank you. So just to start out, let's talk about identification. It's something that you've studied quite a bit. What were some of the earliest forms of ID that were used in India? So if you were to look at some of the early... um, forms of identification. So, of course, there were censuses that came to be undertaken even in uh, pre-colonial India. And so the Mughals, uh, the Marathas, right, the Rajputs all came up with their own censuses. uh, Post-colonization, you have uh, uh, the caste census, for instance, emerging in 1901. But even uh, before that, disease uh, saw its a fair share of identification documents and identification measures. So, yeah, and so some of the earliest identification measures then uh, would involve um, coming up with all these documents related to uh, plague, whether you're talking about uh, plague passports, uh, exemption certificates related to plague, detention certificates, or or, uh, plague inoculation certificates, uh, and the like. That's really interesting. 
So I want to talk now about the plague, and let's just give a little background to our listeners. So it arrived in Bombay in 1896, and it came on ships that docked at the Bombay port. And back then, Bombay had a population of about 800,000 people. So the plague arrived in August, and then by March, which is seven months later, 20,000 people had died, and hundreds of thousands left the city, and then they carried the disease into the rest of India. And if that wasn't bad enough, right before this, there was a famine, right? Tell us about that. Uh, The famine had happened in the Bombay presidency, and uh, around... uh, Four and a half lakh people died in the Bombay presidency uh, and uh, Deccan Plateau. And uh, this happened in 1899 to 1900, right? So, and it was seen to have um, some of the highest mortality rates uh, compared to uh, other famines. Um, Wait, is that 4.5 lakhs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 450,000 people. More than that, a little more than that, yeah. Is that how many, uh, that's just in Bombay, 450,000 people? That's right, in the Bombay presidency. Okay, uh, that seems like an incredibly large number to me. Exactly. Especially assuming that the population back then was probably much lower than it is today. Yeah, and I should say that, uh, by the way, the uh, famine happened um, in 1899-1900, but there also been famine-like conditions uh, before that. So, um, so you can imagine that uh, Bombay as a city was very vulnerable to uh, death and disease and famine had rendered it so and uh, by the time the uh, plague actually breaks out by the time there's a plague outbreak in Bombay you you can actually see uh, the deaths multiply and you can actually see a, a, a certain raging wave of uh, disease um, across uh, various parts of uh, Bombay Presidency, but uh, particularly in uh, the hinterland. But also uh, c- cities fared very badly as well. So that's interesting. Um, Bombay back then was very different from present-day Bombay, right? So yeah. when you say it spread through Bombay and through the hinterlands, mm. uh, what was the hinterland like? Uh, who was living in Bombay? Who was living outside it? Was the town segregated into black town and white town? And were those even the terms being used? I mean, yes. um, uh, what did Bombay look like in those days? If you to look at how Bombay as a city evolved, how it um, grew, how it expanded, so uh, I'm going to actually rely on what one uh, historian of Bombay has said. Sandeep Hasari Singh um, tells us about how the growth of Bombay as a city pretty much reflected uh, the character of the empire as well as the global economy of the time. Right. So what that meant was that um, Bombay as a city um, saw a flourishing port culture, a very vibrant port culture. It was also home to uh, two booming trades. And this was uh, trade in two commodities, that is uh, opium and raw cotton. Right. And um, so if you were to look at the global economy, then uh, opium as a commodity was uh, being uh, dispatched in swathes in great bulk uh, to China, while raw cotton was being sent in consignments uh, to Britain, right? Um, which was using that to make uh, finished goods, right? Finished uh, chintz and calico uh, textiles. And uh, so Bombay was as such catering to uh, a global uh, trade in these commodities. 
over time you also saw mills coming up in the city and so as a result you also had um, several mill workers uh, who were uh, spread across the city and uh, so that's uh, so you you can actually then picture a city which on the one hand saw migration uh, by a lot of um, small brokers traders right merchants uh, in fact even ship builders all of them moving to uh, bombay uh, in uh, the 18th and the 19th centuries and added to that was also the mag- uh, the migration of several workers who came to be employed in uh, bombay's mills uh, so to answer your question about white town and black town yes the, there were uh, terms like that being used and these were uh, terms that were used quite uh, rampantly in uh, all the presidencies presidency towns um, especially so if you to look whether you're talking about um, bombay or madras or calcutta these uh, terms were being employed to refer to uh, the quarters where the europeans uh, stayed and that was a uh, uh, white town while um, the residential quarters um, of um, uh, indians was the black town so of course the uh, the white town also contained um, also was also home to the cantonment and uh, it in a way it was a colonial enclave right and then it and then it was uh, encircled by uh, this uh, fort wall and beyond the fort walls uh, lay the black town so there was an actual physical border between yes. the white and black towns yes and what did that border mark uh, was it the end of sanitary services and the beginning of uh, filth oh Ah, uh, yeah, interesting wording of uh, the question, of that question. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just borrowing from all of those historical documents by the Brits that said uh, Indians were filthy. So, uh, filth in air quotes. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, uh, in one sense, yes. Uh, the colonial enclave had to be guarded from all disease, uh, from rebellion, um, from raids, right, all of that. Um, but... and and for those reasons it had to be um guarded from uh, guarded from uh, soldiers for instance contracting diseases uh, whether it's uh, epidemics like uh, smallpox or cholera or um, you know uh, yellow fever or uh, uh, tuberculosis or, or plague um and also uh, venereal diseases like syphilis um it was important uh, to uh, ensure that there was not too much uh, coming and going of um, of indians into the white town except of course uh, to ensure that there is uh, enough of uh, menial services that are made available so so that's uh, the white town feel that sounds so like a modern gated community in india <laughs> it does it does it uh, definitely does i'm uh, i am yeah hard place to think of uh, what uh, the mygate app looks like <laughs> in the 19th century <laughs> <laughs> so that aside um, the black town uh, came to be uh, marked by all kinds of uh, residential as well as commercial activity interesting So I'm really curious to know how the Black Town did during the plague in Bombay. Yeah, it so happened that um, 
there was these um, houses or there were these forms of housing that landlords had uh, set up for mill workers in the black town these uh, houses were more or less one room tenements now you see with the plague you had uh, a certain chaos of housing as well right uh, because people had to be evicted from their houses and especially the poor came to be evicted uh, in a big way right uh, from um uh, from uh, various uh, centers of the city and um, and it, it was only possible to uh, evict um, the poor and slum residents wantonly right you couldn't do the same thing uh, to middle class residents and uh, once you evict them you would have to air out the buildings you you would kind of disinfect the buildings you'd you'd line wash them uh so on right and and so this this whole thing resulted in a huge housing chaos and uh, sometimes um, slums were demolished and not just you know uh, disinfected over time and especially with the plague uh, setting in uh, you had um, the bombay improvement trust right which was like this colonial agency that was formed uh, to improve housing for the poor and uh, the bombay improvement trust simply did not come up with enough houses or enough housing uh, to resettle the people who had been evicted and so uh, you know the housing chaos continued so even in the 1920s you had an extreme uh, pressure on land and you had this uh, frenzied um, construction where you know more floors were being added um and um, the landlords the the um, extremely uh, reckless and brazen landlords were back in business right so that's so that was the so that's one way in which to understand uh, the black town and 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 so yes you had all these attempts uh, to sanitize but they also kind of collapsed because of the housing crisis that bombay encountered and medical interventions uh, could you tell us a little bit about what was put into place yeah uh, so when you're talking about medical interventions uh, the epidemic disease act was passed in the year 1897 and uh, sir john woodburn who was this member of uh, the viceroy's legislative council was the person who moved the bill uh, to um, ensure that the uh, british uh, authorities would have a very effective and powerful act with teeth to fight the plague and and that's how it uh, went down right uh, the act also gave the central authorities that is to say the government authorities um powers to put in uh, place all kinds of special measures right whatever they thought was uh, suitable and was warranted all these uh, authorities were uh, now in a good place uh, to um, inspect uh, incoming and outgoing uh, ships and other vessels um, and to also set up uh, plague observation sheds and inspection stations at railway stations and um, apart from this also um, you know dispatch uh, officials dispatch uh, doctors to go into the homes of uh, suspected uh, plague patients and um, inspect their bodies examine their bodies um, evict people if necessary uh, disinfect buildings right um, and and also insist on things like medical certificates and um, 
I mean to say by medical certificates, death certificates, right? So you weren't also allowed to cremate uh, your dead or bury your dead unless you could produce a, a death certificate. So I just wanted to ask you about something that you mentioned, um, the train travel. When they checked the people on the trains, I'm wondering if it was selective. Like, who did they check and who did they decide not to check? Mm. So, good uh, good question. So, um, you had um, very disparate and um, very uh, discriminatory, I would say, uh, sorts of uh, measures, wherein uh, you had uh, third-class passengers at times prevented from traveling altogether, especially if you're talking about fares, you know, of the tickets for third-class travel to fares were cancelled altogether, right? So, uh, in fact, um, you saw authorities taking this call, right, where uh, they felt that maybe it would be too imprudent um, and maybe it it would be um, too um, risky to call off a fare altogether because uh, God knows what kind of uh, rebellion that would instigate. Uh, In the face of uh, those kinds of dilemmas, you saw authorities actually just cancel third-class tickets. But at other times, you had uh, third-class passengers being examined in the platform itself, while, you know, second-class and first-class passengers had it more easy. uh, They would be examined in the the compartments itself, right? So so you had that kind of uh, disparity of uh, medical inspection that was uh, put in place. In this case, surveillance was used as a tool to ensure borders were tightly controlled. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Is that what is happening today with COVID-19 as well? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, yeah, so the this whole border tightening business was something that you saw uh, being manifest in both similar and dissimilar ways, uh, both in the 19th century and uh, at a time like this. So uh, if you look at it... Um, The Epidemic Disease Act, when it was introduced, um, you had um, it being used to tighten borders at ports and railway stations. So, for instance, bills of uh, health uh, would have to be uh, signed by port officers, clearing passengers and crew from bubonic plague before embarkation. And steamers and ships, therefore, could not travel, right, or could not sail. And uh, you also had all kinds of zones that were being created. So it's not just borders that were being created, you know, um, between countries or between nations, but there's also like several kinds of cordon sanitaire or uh, certain zones, right? Uh, Certain sanitary zones that are being created within uh, the city itself, for instance, right? And... uh, and, and so you had detention uh, camps that were uh, being set up just outside ra- railway stations. So that's one way in which to think of how borders were being created as well as uh, tightened. And, and of course, this also resulted in uh, the expansion of the powers of the state also, right? Um, because, you know, in certain uh, regions, like for instance in Pune, um, where Rand was uh, the president of uh, the plague committee, uh, he sent the army in to the houses of uh, people to detect anyone who was hiding, right? Because it uh, he had come to hear that plague patients were being concealed, so he he would just uh, go uh, go in, or he would he would send the army in to pull out uh, these people, 
right? And uh, this along with uh, the arbitrary and the indiscriminate examination of uh, people's bodies, uh, women's bodies, and you can imagine the kind of upper caste uh, sensation, that this, sensation that it created among the upper caste, right? So uh, in a more contemporary um, scenario, how is it that the sovereignty of nations, how is it uh, that uh, the powers of states multiply, right? And this lockdown has entailed so much in terms of restriction of movement, you know, and the distinction that's drawn between essential, non-essential items, pretty much like uh, cutting off a supply of, uh, of various things, including very necessary rations uh, for migrants, right? And, uh, and even though there are like, again, all these um, righteous claims that are being made about how rations are being made available for uh, uh, the poor and the migrants. So, uh, and in terms of the imposition of the Epidemic Disease Act, the National Disaster Management Act, there's actually been an imp- really an explosion of uh, the powers of the state, right? So, um, border management has uh, very neatly segued into uh, unlimited um, uh, powers of the state. So, it sounds like there's some similarities between our past and present right. in India. Right. Uh, you, yeah, definitely. Uh, there are a lot of similarities, I think. Uh, the Epidemic Disease Act has been invoked um, after the outbreak of COVID in, uh, COVID-19 in uh, India. And it's uh, in the name of this act um, and by the powers vested by this act uh, to uh, the government that you have uh, very many stringent uh, and sweeping powers of uh, surveillance that uh, state governments have armed themselves with, right? And so if you do uh, look at the uh, Maharashtra government, then it has gone ahead and stamped the left arm of um, uh, of people who have been quarantined such that, you know, if these people were to step out, if they were to travel in trains, and, and apparently somebody uh, in uh, Maharashtra traveling on a train uh, who was quarantined and who had his arm, uh, stamped was caught and um, and yeah so I'm guessing either fines or arrests or and also plentiful measures of shame would have followed. It's just fascinating how history seems to repeat itself to an extent. So I just want to go back to the past and the plague in Bombay, and we need to talk about caste because yeah. obviously in Indian society it touches everything. So you could also think of caste as sort of a barrier to certain people getting certain things. And I'm wondering how caste played out in Bombay during the plague times. Mm. I mean, I read about the European army men and they were going into houses and just terribly intrusive examining women for plague. And were these women of a certain caste? Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. um, So this brings me also to the writing of Nasarwanji Choksi. Nasarwanji Hormoschi Choksi, if you wanted to know his full name, who is this Parsi doctor from whose writing I came to hear a lot about the kind of uh, caste panics that uh, the plague had generated, because there's no other way of describing it, right? And uh, so in both through the writings of uh, reporters, um, for the Maratha, which is this newspaper um, that uh, Tilak um, came up with, right, with Tilak had uh, set up, as well as um, through the writings of Choksi, I got a certain sense, a, a rich archival sense 
of uh, how the caste interacted with the plague and uh, how what today we call social distancing, how uh, certain... Um, certain embedded, certain uh, deeply uh, imprinted uh, notions of uh, caste were so prevalent among uh, upper caste uh, society, but also um, within uh, certain other sections like the mill workers, right? So to give you um, a flavor of what I mean by all this, uh, on the one hand, uh, you had... Um, uh, several Bhadralok families, um, Bhadralok being a term that uh, refers to uh, uh, urbane, often educated uh, middle class uh, residents, and usually the term is used for uh, people residing in Bengal presidency. Um, so, whether you're talking about um, the outrage that is caused by the medical examination of uh, Bhadralok women, upper caste women, uh, or whether you're talking about um, women who were in Parda and Gosha, that is to say both Muslim and Hindu uh, women who were veiled, the uh, outrage and the uh, sensation that was created um, by um, European men as well as Indian men, um, they could be doctors, but they were still men, uh, and men of a different caste, uh, touching these women was, so the outrage was just off the charts, right, uh, with regard to all this. But apart from this, there was also outrage related to certain other things, as I again mentioned. So the uh, insistence on uh, the production of death certificates meant that people would not be able to observe certain funeral rites uh, the way they should on time. Um, and in the auspicious hour. Uh, and so this uh, also then uh, entailed um, that people uh, hide their sick ones, either abandon them or conceal them. And this is one way in which they thought they could get around uh, some of the, uh, the excessive, the stringent plague measures as they perceived it. Can you tell us a little bit more about the man who documented all this info you got, Choksi? So um, this is a man who, uh, you know, was uh, born um, in the 1860s and he joined uh, Grant Medical College uh, established in Bombay. And uh, this is this is the first, apparently this first uh, institution really that uh, provided um, education and uh, training in me medicine. And uh, having graduated from this place, uh, he went on to serve in um, various committees, but in particularly in one uh, medical committee of the Indian Factory Commission. And he was appointed the secretary to this place. And so he also inquires into the medical condition of um, mill workers. So from there, he uh, moves on to also um, working uh, in various hospitals. But he also treats uh, uh, smallpox um, patients. And he also apparently worked for smallpox vaccination. Um, and uh, so having uh, served across uh, certain committees, having worked for um, vaccinations, Having served in certain hospitals, he has a, a very nuanced 
a sense of the the demographic within which uh, disease spreads and uh, and also certain notions of how patients when they are admitted to these hospitals battle with caste how they uh, attempt to negotiate caste right so so uh, choksi actually also then is able to give us a very wide uh, in, insights into plague itself i also read uh, choksi's report on the bubonic plague and now this is a, a very in, interesting primary source as i tell my students or an archival source um and it's called report on bubonic plague and he writes this report and it's based on observations of 939 cases right and he's uh, tested 939 cases of plague and he writes this report based on observations of all those cases and so it's when he's uh, working at this hospital that he gets uh, the deepest sorts of insights into um, how caste works um, and uh, so he talks about how uh, the medical regime was one that prompted upper caste especially to act out right and to constantly um either throw out uh, suffering relatives or abandon them and uh, because they were so scared of caste defilement and he seems to suggest uh, in this report that this is unprecedented that uh, the the fevered pitch at which indians were attempting to uh, conceal uh, people or you know uh, or thwart any kind of caste defilement he seems to suggest that it is Uh, unprecedented compared to other diseases and so this also tells you a little bit about how he thought that um plague measures were particularly excessive earlier um when you were talking about border management and unlimited powers of the state so it sounds like definitely this time the state was exerting a lot of power and indians did not trust the state and were trying to hide the disease um so to what extent do you think the british managed to expand their state powers and did this uh, expansion last or you know just also thinking of our present situation with covid-19 mm. and the state exerting so much power right now i'm wondering what might be the end result of all this mm. will the power sort of stay on with the state or do you think the public is going to respond and ensure there's a curbing of power later yeah yeah that's a great question again um so yes while there was um manifold growth in the powers of the state um, there were many ways in which um the uh, heels of these officials were also being cooled in a way <laughs> because they were being slowed down uh, considerably as well um and uh, so so yeah i mean i i see where you're going with that question because you in a way want to know whether uh, certain um certain forms of surveillance certain uh, devices of surveillance whether they remain uh, but at the same time you also if i'm not mistaken you're also asking a question about um, the popular responses and how uh, certain kinds of uh, popular trends do they also succeed in slowing down a plague measure slowing down the such surveillance right so uh, let me first speak a little bit about these um, uh, popular uh, incidents right um, you also had the mill workers who protested and there was this one time where um, mill workers um, 
were extremely unhappy that a woman mill worker was uh, taken away willingly to uh, the Arthur Road Hospital and there was a riot-like situation. Right, so uh, there was also uh, this incident of, well, this was again an upper caste man, Damodar Chapikar, who uh, became uh, notorious for uh, being um, the Indian who successfully assassinated uh, Rand, right, W.C. Rand, who, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, the president of the uh, Pune Plague Committee. So owing to incidents like this, and also uh, owing to the v- very colorful panoply of uh, ways in which uh, people hid uh, and concealed their dead, um, right? Owing to all of this, you you actually had a, a system of um, medical surveillance which relied uh, less on quarantines and uh, less on detentions and more on creating all kinds of exceptions, right? And and so you had all kinds of passes that were being created. You had uh, the plague passports uh, and uh, you had permits, all of this being given. And so people holding these passports, a plague passport, for instance, was introduced in the Madras presidency, right? And uh, it was a, a document that was issued to uh people who were traveling from plague-infected railway stations. And if you had this, then you had your temperature taken. And uh, so you were pretty much cleared of plague, but that did not exempt you from 10 days of reporting to uh, medical authorities, right? And so the plague passport kind of like cleared you for travel on the condition that you uh, reported uh, to certain authorities and had your uh, had health checkup done. So, so you saw uh, a certain sort of uh, diluting of uh, of surveillance, um, but also perhaps a better way of putting it would be to see how colonial authorities had kind of created a certain wedge between surveillance on the one hand and quarantines and detentions on the other hand, right? Because they thought surveillance was a better tool. Uh, compared to uh, quarantines and detentions. Um, that's how the medical surveillance thing panned out over time. Um, so as as for um, whether certain powers uh, remained, I would say yes, because uh, there was no dearth of diseases uh, even after uh, a plague, right? So you had uh, other diseases like cholera, uh, like, um, let's see, uh, the Spanish flu, which uh, hit India in a very big way afterwards. So uh, uh, instruments like the Epidemic Disease Act would stand uh, the colonial government in good stead. You were listening to Chat Room, and that was Tarangini Sri Raman on Bombay as Plague City. Visit scrollsandleaves.com and click on show notes for the transcript. And we're just getting started, so if you liked what you heard, please do help us spread the word. And stay tuned next week for episode two, Healing Plants.